Welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. I'm Mina B, and I'm a licensed social worker, mental health educator, and author of Owning Our Struggles. I'll be chatting with experts, wellness advocates, and others about the power of community care in improving your mental health. We'll delve into topics such as friendships, managing difficult relationships, and most importantly, how to cultivate belonging and support in our lives. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Dr. Raquel Martin is an experienced, licensed clinical psychologist, devoted professor, acclaimed researcher, and scientist. She deeply believes in the power of Black mental wealth, an affirming, lifelong journey that encourages Black people to center mental health practices as integral and intentionally linked to success and well-being. Dr. Martin is on a mission to radically reimagine Black possibility by promoting Black mental health as key to legacy building and longevity for generations to come. Hi, Dr. Martin. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. I've been a fan of your work for so long. So I'm really excited to just be able to talk to you about different topics that I see you talk about so much on your platform. But one of the things I want to explore with you is your work is rooted in this concept of Black mental wealth. And so since I want to talk to you about depression and just mental health in general within the Black community, especially amongst Black women, can you first help us understand what Black mental wealth means to you? I feel like it encompasses a lot of things. One of the biggest things is, I would say, humanizing Blackness and allowing individuals to be present in the space and the way that they choose to be present. I feel like the opposite of Black mental wealth is rooted in white supremacy and adultification and dehumanization. So I think anything that has to do with Black mental wealth goes to counteract that. Because I think sometimes when people mention well-being and mental health, they use them interchangeably. But I feel like well-being is like the umbrella and mental health happens to be under that umbrella overall. So when I think of Black mental wealth, I think of services, community care, whether it's holistic, whether it's mental well-being, whether it's therapy, whether it's being able to wear your hair blue if you want to, anything that humanizes the Black experience and allows us to be present without meaning to shrink. With Black mental wealth, I try to focus on it as a professor, training the clinicians that are coming up, allowing us to have a curriculum that not only talks about some aspect of psychology, of course, but centers their experience and like Gen Z and using technology. They keep me on my toes all the time. I literally have to alter my courses every single semester because something is new that's going to relate to them every single semester. Um, I, I do it in terms of doing speaking engagements and making sure I'm centering Black mental health and well-being. And I do it interpersonally with therapy. It really is just trying to center the Black experience. I always feel like the day centering of our narrative is violence to the Black community because 
as clinicians, we both know that when it comes to Black identity development, being able to see yourself in all realms is contributing to high mental well-being, high self-esteem, mm-hmm. high academic achievement, decrease of depression, decreased anxiety. So when people choose to sublimate our voices, I just consider that violence because it is. <laughs> like We know what the benefit is to have um, our culture centered. So anyone who takes us out of that is enacting violence against our community. So I would say it's that. I mean, the fact that you could sum that up in literally just like two minutes just speaks to how well-versed you are because that was so rich and powerful. And because we are pretty much unpacking Black mental health, before I dive in with any more questions, I want to pause here because I know that there are going to be people who are already listening and might say, well, Dr. Martin and Mina, why do we have to make this about race? Mental health is mental health. And you just broke down a lot of concepts rooted in racial disparities, white supremacy, all of those things. And I think sometimes people hear the term Black mental health and it feels like this form of segregation. And it feels like, well, why can't we just make it mental health for all people? And so can you first help listeners understand the structural, cultural, and institutional, you know, disparities at play that impact Black people compared to other races. And this is why we have to have a conversation specifically on Black mental health. Yeah, Black mental health is not the same as mental health for any other culture or ethnicity because our mental health, our well-being, our existence is inextricably linked to society and the way that we are treated. And there is no culture that is treated the same Dehumanized the same, adultified the same, has had systemic aspects of oppression, racism, prejudice, and white supremacy embedded in our being as Black people. So if we understand the fact that the way our mental health is is, is linked to the way society treats us, economic norms, societal norms, oppression, then we can't in any way think that depression as a result of racial battle fatigue for a Black woman is going to be the same as depression as a result of European-American gender norms for that woman, right? There's no way to think that it would be the same because we don't get treated the same. And once everyone understands that our mental health is a result of the way not only our inner well-being, but the way society treats us, I am a licensed clinical psychologist, but I identify as a liberation psychologist. And that means that it's not only my job to talk about the intricacies of what's happening to you internally, it's also my job to work with you to be an agent of change within your community Because it's not only depression because you're sad. You're sad as a result of racism. You're sad as a result of going to work and feeling like you need to straighten your hair. That's institutional (laughs) oppression. You're sad as a result of seeing people that look like you being treated poorly. Another form of oppression. You're sad as a result of you're pregnant and you're afraid that you're not going to survive your pregnancy. Because the mortality rate for Black women is what are we at? Four, five times more than European American women. And this is in addition to norms. I am a... Black woman who was a doctor, I have a bachelor's, two masters, and a PhD, it is more likely that I will die in childbirth than a European-American woman without a high school diploma, right? So if we were to just look at this from the superficial lens of saying, oh, it's a woman and she's depressed when it comes to pregnancy, and these are the typical procedures that happen with a woman that comes to pregnancy, and you don't interject some aspect of providing education of normalizing that fear. And you cannot normalize that fear without having education about what is contributing to them having that fear. You're not going to be able to do them a service, right? 
So not focusing on Black mental health, not focusing on the intersecting identities is superficial. And many times it's incredibly invalidating. So it could be more detrimental than having someone that actually understands it. At one time I was with a colleague and they were like, well, I feel like a therapist is better than no therapist. And I said, I do not agree because a lot of times when I have patients that are being transferred to me, I am upending the harm that a previous clinician has done to them saying that racism is in their head. Maybe they should just think better. Before I'm even getting to the fact that they went to that clinician for PTSD, I have to upend what that clinician did before we even get to the goals for therapy. So the way we deal with the world is linked to the way the world treats us. And we all acknowledge that the world does not treat Black people the same that they treat anyone. And even generationally, right? One of the things I think when it comes to Black mental wealth is I am working with individuals who we're trying to work to help you thrive in a society that never even expected you to survive. That, I feel like, is the epitome of Black mental wealth. So when you are trying to think of being an agent of change, when you are trying to think of what contributes to your well-being, I really just want to center that existence. Because for Black people, a lot of times, we feel as though we have to do any and everything. Black people don't get to represent just themselves. I'm going to represent every single Black dark-skinned woman from Philly with an Afro anytime I go into a job. The freedom that it is just to represent yourself is something that Black people aren't allowed. So a lot of times when I'm working with Black people, I'm like, it seems like you're going too hard once again. They're like, I have to do it for everyone. And I'm just like, well, you know, being an agent of change is also surviving and thriving in a society that never expected you to survive. So you showing up, you being yourself, you choosing to say no, that's like excellence and activism as well. It would be like if someone said, well, I use this depression model for men and clearly it'll work for women too. (laughs) You would look at them like they have lost their minds. You would be like, what? Why would that work for me? So why is it any different? Exactly. Because <laughs> we know the world treats men and women differently, right? I use this depression model that was normed off of 14-year-old girls, but I'm going to use it for a 25-year-old <laughs> man. What? Why would that work for them? You don't think the world treats a 25-year-old man and he gets messages different than a 14-year-old girl? Why would you use that? It's the same exact thing. The thing about it is people, they automatically, right. they hear ethnicity, they think segregation. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. But you think that's right, a me thing? Right. You think I that that was on me? Like you think I'm de- I'm dealing with the results, honey. I'm just trying to survive. You going the wrong way. You think it's segregation. You need to think decentering, and it's not about you, right? Because when so many people are used to being centered, and here's the thing: a lot of times when I do these talks and and speaking engagements, one of the biggest <laughs> the biggest things I hear is like, I just really appreciate the fact that your speech is your speech, no matter who is in the room. Like it matter if it's a bunch of you or it's not a bunch of you. And I was like, well, yeah. Right. They know who they hired. Like you, there's no, it's like, you don't have to dig deep to figure out who you, who you need when you book me. Like, that's not a question. Right. But I always state my job is not to make you feel bad. However, if you do, I want you, instead of deciding to have a knee jerk reaction and like, you know, verbally or physically just throw hands all day. I want you to think about what makes you uncomfortable or makes you feel bad about this because there are two things that can be happening. One, you're so used to being centered in experience that not being centered feels like violence to you. And that is very typical to be like, oh, this isn't about me. How is this not about me? But I also want you to think you can acknowledge the fact that everything in this world has always affirmed you. Everything in this world told you that we are meant to listen to you. Everything in this world said that your voice matters. Everything in this world said that if something happens to you, we will protect you. And you can acknowledge that that is not appropriate. Does that make you bad? No, this is a societal issue that you happen to benefit from. So take the time to process why it makes you uncomfortable, but also realize that you can acknowledge that that's not appropriate. 
you can acknowledge that saying that one person's voice is better and more important than another person's voice is inappropriate, that you're going to be protected and this person is not going to be protected, that you're going to be seen as human and this person is not. You can acknowledge that that's wrong. And that's not calling you racist. That's not calling you prejudiced. You benefit from this. You can acknowledge that it makes stuff easier for you and harder for someone else and then decide what you're going to do about it. Some people decide to do something. Some people don't. But my job is not to make you feel bad. However, if you do, you should think about that. You know, it's the difference between like impact and intent. They're two very different things. When we're dealing in therapy, and you know this, we're dealing with the impact of what someone did. <laughs> Patient will tell us stuff and we don't even know if that's exactly what they said. The person, we don't even know if that's what the person said, but we're dealing with the impact, right? They're like, well, doesn't that sound like they're awful? Well, from what you said to me, I can see how it feels awful, right? Right. But I'm not going to say, yeah, yeah, he was terrible. I wasn't even there, right? What I am going to deal with is the impact of what that was, the impact of how that made you feel, shame and guilt and anger, right? And I can't tell you what the intent of that person is. This is not a family session. I'm dealing with the impact. So, so many times people will be like, it wasn't my intent to offend you. I'm still offended. It wasn't my intent to make you upset. I'm still upset. And we still have to deal with the harm that was caused, right? When you do these talks and they're like, that wasn't my intent. The fact that it's not your intent to say something that is steeped in oppression and you still did it without that knowledge, that means you need to go home and read a book and watch a documentary. That's something you have to do in your own time. What we need to do, though, is talk about how this is now an unsafe environment for me and how we're going to manage that. There's a difference between what we have to do together and what you have to do on your own. And a lot of times people think that like, it's my job to do that for you, unless you hired me to do that. It's my job to do that for you if we're having a conversation as colleagues. And it's like, well, that seems like something you need to deal with later. You're probably going to deal with it with HR because the report has already been filed. But what we need to deal with is, you know, this now feels like an unsafe environment to me because now, because racism is unsafe. You know, it's, it's a threat, right? So now we have to deal with the impact of what you said, making me feel unsafe in my work, home, school environment, et cetera. And sometimes people think it wasn't your intent, so it doesn't matter. It's like, I always say, it's like walking around with a knife unsheathed. Like, first of all, what, what are you doing? But you walk around with a knife and lo and behold, you stab someone. It's like, oh, my bad. I didn't mean to stab you. None of that <laughs> is done in generalizing your work with patients. All of that is harm. And I think people don't take it seriously enough because they don't get to see the harm of it. You, you can't see it as much if you're not taking the time to look into narratives and and stories and books and even being around people that don't look like you. Because if you are engaging with Black people and you are not upset at how they feel, you're not listening. There's no way. All of us are struggling. I was pregnant and I was scared out of my mind. I have two boys and I was talking to a colleague. We were both pregnant at the same time, you know, having snacks and sharing bumps. And she's like, aren't you so excited about having a baby? And I was like, I am. I am also very scared about having a Black child. And she had never thought of anything other than joy because she's a European-American woman. She automatically understands whether she knows this or not, that the world is meant to center and protect her child. And she was having a boy. Yes. So that child's voice will always matter. Me, I'm like, I'm having a boy too. We were both having boys. And I'm just like, I am scared out of my mind. And then I'm also angry that the world takes that from me, takes that normal experience. Right. But she never thought about it because she never had to. She only saw me at work. Right. Her experience and the people around her didn't look like me. So it's not like you're not a bad person, but it was an eye-opening experience for her. Not for me. This is something that me and my Black pregnant woman be like, yeah, so what are we going to do? Did you get that new book that came out? Yep, it looks just like Ooh. The Voice. Okay. Did you get another one? Yeah. This school has this population of Black students, but it has this population of Black teachers. What do you think? 
oh, there was just a shooting in that neighborhood, police brutality. What do you think? Did we let them watch this? Like, it wasn't new to me. This is what we do. But to her, she was just like, I never thought of that. You never had to. Ooh, oh my gosh. I felt like this was a whole TED Talk. <laughs> I could just wrap the show up right now, Dr. Martin. Let you just bow out. Y'all don't need me here. <laughs> this is exactly why I needed to have you on the show. Oh my gosh. You just unpacked so, so much. And... Oh my God, like I, I wish people could see me and feel what's happening in my yeah. body right now. <laughs> because I just love how you broke this down. And I, I really hope that this doesn't fall on closed ears. Because as you said, these conversations make people uncomfortable. And I think people have to realize that feeling uncomfortable is not synonymous with being unsafe. And I think Feeling unsafe is why a lot of people have these knee-jerk reactions. Specifically, white people sometimes have these knee-jerk reactions that they don't even realize is rooted in them now being able to weaponize their race to bring harm to the Black body because you simply feel uncomfortable and don't know how to regulate your own uncomfortable emotions. And then you put it on the Black body to now say, I have to do the work to make you feel comfortable instead of you you doing the work of going home, watching documentaries, reading books, listening to this podcast, and having those uncomfortable conversations so that you can learn to regulate yourself. So literally like everything that you just shared, oh my gosh, like I hope people are taking it in because you just unpacked so, so much that I think a lot of people try to make sense of and they don't really know what's happening in their body or why they respond that way. Or sometimes they're hardened toward it. And then you have to get called in the way you're sharing it so that people can learn. So, y'all, I don't even know what else to say. <laughs> I was going to say, sometimes so many people, they feel that discomfort. But like Audre Lorde said, differences create dialogue. Some people, instead of having that dialogue, they'll just shut the door. And it's because, and this is very unique to like a lot of European American experiences, anything that makes them uncomfortable, typically, sometimes it'll get fixed for them, right? Like I'm uncomfortable in this space. It needs to be more inclusive, right? Because I always say, like, I focus on Black mental health. And people will be like, oh, this this also relates to me. And I said, that is fantastic. And I'm glad that has helped you in some way. But that's a happy afterthought. It wasn't my intention, right? My goal is always to center the Black experience. So I'm glad that it worked for you. But I also want you to know that that wasn't the goal. But I feel like just not being able to sit with discomfort is a privilege, right? Because what you said, Mina, you're like, discomfort doesn't mean you're unsafe we're unsafe, right? Like, yeah. you know, I was doing this conversation with someone and, and we were talking about elementary school and middle school and how to change different conversations. Like the conversation about ethnicity and social justice and oppression happens at every single age range. I'll see some people saying like, when do you have the conversation? And I'm like, well, you never stop having the conversation. It's just like you alter it. And then a parent asked, well, when is it too young to discuss racism? And I said, well, it's never too young to discuss racism because it's never too young for people who look like me to experience racism. My child experienced racism in utero. You know, like it's never too young to experience it. And the thought process is, you know, what if individuals feel bad? And it's just like, so what do you do with that? Do you feel bad at the thought of someone being treated differently than you? Okay. Be an abolitionist. I'm going to change the system. I'm going to advocate for those people. The thought process that feeling bad is where you stop. Stop. Yes. 
is absurd to me. <laughs> it's like when something makes me upset, I'm like, okay, so what are we gonna do? What are we, what are we gonna do about this? Because uh, <laughs> they gave us this thing for my son's school. He started pre K this year, and it's like a scale, and it goes like yellow, green, red, or whatever, and it's for absences. And my husband was like, oh, we haven't had any issues or absences, but I guess this is when it gets into the red, it's an issue. And I said, you know, I don't do that. And he said, you don't do what, Raquel? I was like, well, if my child needs a mental health day, they're going to have a mental health day, okay? Perfect attendance is an example of poor boundaries in yourself, in my opinion. It teaches children not to prioritize their needs because bottom line, I don't want to go to work every day. You may not want to go to school every day. It is a lot, right? Exactly. And he said, okay. He said, it's also if they're late. And I said, do you think being late is comparable to being absent? He said, no. I said, so that's what I don't like. And you know what I do with stuff I don't like? I was like, so we just got to be, we want to change that. Like, you know, but that's, <laughs> that's what abolition is about, right? When you feel uncomfortable, stay there. Question yourself. You should never stop being curious. Yes. That's the problem. It's like, I feel uncomfortable, hard stop. Yes. No. I feel uncomfortable. I need to ask myself and be honest with myself. What's making me uncomfortable? I feel uncomfortable with this conversation because it does not prioritize me. Okay. So you're used to conversations prioritizing you. Yes. Okay. How does that benefit how we're contributing to the world? It probably doesn't. Oh, never thought about that. If you want the Black culture, if you want to talk about something that is embodied in every single Black person, I want you to think of fear. I want you to think of fear. Don't think about our music. Don't think about our hair. Don't think about the effortless drip that is just, you know, just amazing. I want you to think about fear. We don't get to preserve the privilege of not knowing. That whole aspect of tone policing, that's preserving the privilege of not knowing. And ignorance is a privilege because we can't walk in somewhere and not read a room. Yes, exactly. We can't walk in somewhere and see if we're not unsafe. There's this little trend going around called girl math. Have you heard of the social media trend? I see it and Dr. Martin, I'm like, what are people talking about? Because I haven't had the energy to really investigate the root of it. Good, but I'm don't, seeing boy don't. math and girl math. Boy math and girl math, right? Yeah. It's supposed to be like the different calculations that people get to make. I did a post and I was like, well, girl math is trying to calculate the likelihood that me not giving this man my number is going to increase my likelihood of not being on this earth or being attacked. Black girl math. How many people in this room look like me? And may have a certain reaction to the way I engage. And as a result, do I up my masking and cold switching or do I get to be myself? Black girl math is trying to figure out, do I take my braids out to go to this job interview? I know it's not right, but I also know this is a white shoe firm and they're not going to want me with my braids. You know, but people don't get to do that. You know, I had a patient for an entire session. We're trying to process the fact that she was about to take her hair down. Amazing style. She looked fly. Bottom line. She got a last minute call for a job interview and she did not know if she should take her hair down and having to process that. Do you know what somebody who didn't focus on black mental health and didn't understand the aspect of the, you know, the stereotypes against us, the fact that we receive hair discrimination as young as five years old? You know what they would say? I think your hair looks nice. And like, maybe you're overthinking it. Yep. We talked about the aspect of dehumanization, adultification and feeling as though she's not professional. We talked about the aspect of cultural oppression and the way that makes her feel in the environment. We talked about having a discussion about if they don't allow you to be who you are just at an interview, do you want this job even though you need this job? We talked about if you get the job, how long do you feel as though you'll feel comfortable masking, which is typically most people will say the 90-day period, before you get to be yourself? We talked about do you make that sacrifice that is still going to take a hit at you, but you still need to pay your bills? That's what we talked about in that session. Not your hair looks nice. Yeah. The valid fear of do I mask? Or do I not mask? And bottom line, people will say cold switching versus masking. Most Black people are masking. They're creating whole avatars, right? Cold switching just refers to language. Yep. 
We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Very Well Mind podcast. I'm your host, Mina B. And you know, what you're speaking to takes me to the concept of community care. You spoke about it before. You know, this is a question I love to ask all of my guests before we wrap up the show, but you have done such a great job at really explaining to people how we can engage in community care. So I kind of have two questions for you because one, I want to know from you, what does community care mean to you? And I also want to know, because of all the things that you've been highlighting around Black mental health, a common question some people say is, well, Dr. Martin, We deal with complex PTSD because racism has not gone anywhere interpersonally, systemically, institutionally. And so when we are consistently exposed to trauma, how do we cultivate Black liberation? How do we engage in Black mental wealth? What are the steps that we can take so we can feel humanized? especially in a world that is consistently trying to strip us of our humanity. So I know those were two questions combined together, but if you can just give us some insight for people who are struggling, especially around their own mental health, in particular Black people, like what we're talking about, what are the steps that they can take? Yeah, so when I think of community care, I always talk about the aspect that family of origin and family of choice are the same thing in my mind. There are a lot of people that I work with that were not blessed with the family that they deserve. They just weren't given the family that they deserve. They deserve a supportive family. They deserve someone who listens to them. They deserve someone who respects them. They deserve someone that they can laugh with. And they didn't get that. So I always say, build the family that you deserve. Family of origin and family of choice are the same thing. My mom has one sister. I call about like 10 people auntie. Those are the people that my mom chose to be my aunts. That was her choice. I follow the rules, right? That's the community that she also built around herself. I talk about the fact that therapy is helpful. I feel as though community care is actually more integral. And it doesn't only have to be communities that you're around. These digital communities are amazing, in my opinion. A lot of people will do social media. Facebook, though, you know, taking it back. I don't know how young your listeners are, but Facebook, you know, back in the day... (laughs) Before there was, what is it now? TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat. (laughs) Facebook is actually like the community building app. I'm going to be honest with you. Like a lot of times my patients will grow and move to an area and there's not many people that look like them. I'm like, I guarantee you there's a black Facebook page for it. I live in Nashville. There's two black Nashville pages, right? So looking at that, there are also many online communities that actually they'll do like memberships to work with different things. Like Therapy for Black Girls has an online community. I think it's called Sister Circle. Alchemy Health which is for Black Mental Health, also has a community app. Safe Haven for Black Men. They have a podcast, Express Yourself Black Men, but they also have an app where, I forget what the monthly fee is. I think it's like $50 a month, but you get access to resources, guests, and you get one one hour a week coaching with a licensed mental health professional. There's also some other apps like MyLeak Teal. I'm choosing creator at Crowbots, and she also has a bunch of other businesses, but she has MyLeak and Mamas for Black Moms. Beam also has like amazing resources. So I also say like build community and don't think the only way to do it is when individuals are around you. You have mocha moms, you have black dads who run. Like there's so many (laughs) community organizations that could provide that aspect of support. Because one of the things of dealing with like racial battle fatigue and racism is feeling isolated and feeling hopelessness and feeling like you have no way out anyway. And providing resources and being an agent of change is helpful. But also having someone who normalizes your experience and doesn't make you feel like it's in your head is helpful. 
it's so isolating when you hear something racist and you want to look at the black person next to you and be like, yo, was that racist? But there's no one next to you. So you just think you don't lost your mind. <laughs> and so tokenism of being like we hire these black individuals in these roles, not because they're not qualified, they're incredibly qualified, but they make a quota of qualified people who are 10 times more qualified than the individuals around them. But we're going to give them a job. The tokenism is it's violence as well, because you don't have anyone else to discuss your experience with to advocate for you. It's just you. And the pressure of just advocating for yourself is difficult. So I say start those communities. I also say pay attention to your body when it comes to like, what do you do? You're dealing with racism every single day. You're dealing with this like racial battle fatigue of feeling like you're feeling isolated. Self-monitoring will always protect you when it comes down to it. I think a lot of people get to a 10 very quickly on the eight anchor scale when they wake up at an eight every single day. So you have to know your body and know when you're getting to that space. And so um, irritability is a very common sign of depression when something is wrong. I was just telling my students... <laughs> One of my students in particular, she mentioned the fact that like being irritable is her personality. And I said, oh, that's not true. <laughs> and I said, I'm not even going to direct this just to you. I'm going to direct this to everyone. When you feel as though you're irritated all the time, when you feel as though you're angry all the time, something is wrong. And the reason why you may think this is your personality is because the thing that is wrong may be environmental. You have to be in that home environment, that school environment every day. It may be environmental familially, like it's your parents or your cousins who you live with who disparage and invalidate you every single day. It's one of the reasons why I recommend people, if they can, to leave their environment. Because so many of my students are like, I'm so different when I come to college. In my mind, I'm like, yeah, that's a sign. It's coming from inside the house, literally. It's why most of my students cannot stand Christmas and Thanksgiving yep. break. Yep. They have to go back to that space that is awful for them. And they don't really have a choice. So I say pay attention to the signs environmentally. I say ask yourself questions like, do you notice that you feel more comfortable around people? Because one of the issues with like masking and cold switching and being in an environment that doesn't support you or center you in that experience, you lose identity when you have to change who you are all the time. But it's also exhausting. You have to deal with racism, but then you also have to sublimate your identity and not be yourself that's difficult. So I encourage people to pay more attention to the places that don't drain you, that you don't feel more exhausted around. Pay attention to the people where you feel like you get to be more genuine around yourself. And can you increase the likelihood of being around those people? Right. And even if you can't change it, a lot of times at work, we're dealing with racism and you may not be able to leave your job yet. Some people, when they're about to leave their job or they know they have to exit, that's when they like turn it down. They'll do as much. This is when I want you to turn it up. I want you to think about every single opportunity as something that you're going to talk about at your interviews. I want you to think about tangible ways. Oh, yeah, I don't mind being on that committee. I mean, I'm leaving in six months. This is an internal dialogue. I'm leaving in six months, but it's going to be great on my resume, the fact that I headed up this committee that started that. I want you to think about that. And if you can't leave that job in the first place, you would be surprised how much having an exit strategy, even if it's like I'm leaving in 20 days, 400 days, 500 days, just having those days to count down make you feel less stressed. Being aware of the fact that if this environment makes you stressed out, yes, you have to go to work, but you don't have to go to that happy hour. Right. Yes, you have to go to work, but is there any way to come up with a higher risk schedule so you don't have to be around that all the time? And also be aware of like, it could also be internal, right? We deal with in the Black community, you know, you're dealing with a sexism and ageism and colorism and, and homophobia. Well, and it could be in your home environment. I find that Black people all the time are being agents of change and activists and they can get resistance fatigue and they start to feel numb to all the negative stuff in the environment. But that's typically when you know you need to take a break. But also, like, when you're reading books as someone who consistently has to be aware of what's happening in the world, I'm not going to read, like, 1619 yeah. and On the Come Up and all these books back to back. I'm going to read 1619 and then I'm going to break it up a little bit with probably some Nikki Giovanni. Like, I'm, I'm going to break stuff up. Be aware of, like, how often you are 
engaging in dialogues or conversations and TV and media and even documentaries that, yes, they're very much helping you to be educating your experience. But we also need to be aware that we are ingesting some form of Black pain and Black trauma, and that's going to be difficult. Why are you watching Roots and then Amistad and then the Emma Till movie? Come on. Like, just... Yeah, yeah, that's too much. Yeah, It's too much. And I'm not <laughs> saying don't be aware that's happening. I'm not saying don't pour into yourself. However, a lot of times people will talk about the aspect of Black history, and, and we're not getting enough of a focus on Black futures. Yes, yes. We are surrounded by like amazing creativity. One of the reasons why I don't feel like I'll ever stop teaching is because to be honest, the students, they're exhausting, but just their minds are amazing. And just being surrounded by like, y'all are the future. Okay, I'm here for this. Like, this is amazing. We focus on Black histories. I want us to focus on Black futures too, because we're going to be in the future. We're going to be in the future. So how many times do you go to a museum that you're looking at like the aspect of creativity? How many times are you able to actually feel joy in your culture? I feel like that's something that we miss a lot, trying to be aware of what's happening in the world. How often are we, you know, you're fighting for the culture, but when do you get to actually embody and enjoy that culture? You feel exhausted because you are exhausted. You feel overwhelmed because it is overwhelming. But when's the last time you actually took joy and just, I'm just going to go to this museum. I'm not about to write an essay on it. I'm not about to feel like I need to learn anything. I really just want to look at this art exhibit that centers us. I really just want to look at these <laughs> things that I enjoy. Think about the number of times you you focus on joy a day. Like when's something that you enjoy? And if you can't think of like five to 10 minutes, something is wrong and that's your homework, I want you to start there. You just start there. I tell my patients that all the time. It's like, yes, I know you came in here because a lot of my patients are very high achieving people. I love y'all, but my God. Come in like, I have this, I want to work on this. That's what's up. So on your itinerary, how often do you do stuff that you just enjoy? And they're like, um, that's your homework. And don't I, I'm not working on with you on anything else. Okay. You know, I don't know. If you can't give me 10 minutes of like crocheting, looking at something that you enjoy, when's the last time you laugh or did a good guffaw? <laughs> like, you know, like when's when's the last time you did that I can't breathe laugh? Like, you know, when's the last time you could not breathe? You were sweating. <laughs> that laugh made you hot. <laughs> like, you know, you was just like, oh my God. You know, just crying from laughing. Like, and you need more moments of that because yes, we can't. Racism is still here. There are many people who are working to combat it, but that's exhausting. And I will say the thing that I typically tell people, one of the things of dealing with racism that is incredibly exhausting, besides the fact that it's embedded in so many entities, is feeling like you have no power, the powerlessness of it. So some people, I'm like, well, you know, this whole entire thing makes me mad. It's exhausting. It's tiring. A lot of times them getting involved in activism actually makes them feel more empowered, them educating themselves and becoming agents of change. That's actually a very good way to affirm themselves and feel like they're doing something because they are. But it doesn't have to be the typical way of you can do sit-ins and sit-outs and boycotts. You can do marches. Um, you can also consider taking a nap is activism for people who never expected you to rest. Advocating for being yourself in your work environment is activism. Showing up as your true self is also activism and feeling comfortable with that. Activism is thriving in an environment that never expected you to survive. So I feel like one of the things that I always recommend is let's find some way for you to take your autonomy back and, and take your power back. And that combats racism every single day, right? If you're concerned about wearing your hair out and you're sick of the racism with that, one of the goals is going to be like, I want you to get to a point where even if you don't feel 100% comfortable, you still do it because you're not always going to feel comfortable when you do it. Maybe not the first time or the second time, maybe the 25th, and that's still progress. 
All right. Because everyone, you know, simple math, two steps forward and one step back is still one step forward. <laughs> I never, whenever people would say that, it's two steps forward, one step back. And I'm like, yes, excitement. And they're like, no, Dr. Barton, that's wrong. And I said, no, you wrong. I know math. I know math. You don't know math. Don't be talking to me. You know, I ain't major in math, but I know two minus one is still one. I, I know you still took a step forward. You tripping. Exactly. It's still progress. I'm writing in my notes, progress, honey. Those are my typical recommendations, but build community. And also, if you can't find a community that centers what you want, make one. Because I guarantee you, somebody else got it too. I guarantee you. And as soon as you make the group, someone, your first member is going to be like, oh my God, I was, oh, I was waiting for, waiting this. for this, right? <laughs> Finally, somebody did it. Yes. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> I was two seconds from making this group. <laughs> you need community. We're not supposed to be in isolation. No, there was a reason why that was one of the main tools of the oppressors to separate, to separate. us. Can't talk. Exactly. Can't separate. Sublimate our culture. Right. You want to combat that? Language. Yes. Take away our language. Separate you. Not allow you to have community. Not let you think about anything but work. The things that we do a lot of times are very much the, the just the steeping of white supremacy exactly. and, the, and the ways that we were brought. And I'm like, well, mm-mm. my child needs a sick day. They need a sick day. My child is never getting a, a perfect attendance record. Because like for what? Oh, so I'm going to teach them to listen to somebody else instead of their body. You're not going to tell me you don't need breaks because I need breaks. Right, exactly. From you. But like, you, you know, <laughs> you're not going to tell me that it's appropriate to teach my child to prioritize these standards that are very much rooted in capitalism and supremacy and the burdening the black body instead of listening to the fact that their brain told them, I'm too tired today. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. They need to learn that early on. A lot of these things that we do are inundating our children to live in a way that we are trying to upend as adults. Like we're trying to even learn about the fact that we need to have mental health days. Start them early. Right. Start them early and give them the opportunities you were not given, you know, and that's what breaking those cycles are. Oh my gosh, Dr. Martin, we clearly have to bring you back. Because now that okay. this part of the conversation, <laughs> we definitely need a whole segment on parenting, gentle parenting, discipline, all of that. Because that's something you also unpack on your channels and in the work you do. And well, this conversation has just been so rich in so many ways that I'm going to just say, just check your inbox for the next time. I'm like, hey, Dr. Martin, we need you back. All right. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to reply. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Martin, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. So before we wrap, please let people know how they can engage with your work and where they can find you. Yeah, so I'm everywhere on social media. It's Raquel Martin, PhD, LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. YouTube is where you'll find more longer form content. I know, you know, everybody not looking for long form content. <laughs> so I'll do the shorter stuff on Instagram. But uh, I have a whole series on combating toxic shame and what it is, combating Black superwoman syndrome and what it is, talking about racial identity development as I bring up my children and things like that. I have a podcast, Mind Your Mental Podcast. We have two seasons. First season is just a bunch of interviews with individuals centering their experience talking about Black mental health. The second season is shorter. It's just some recommendations and tips. And this one, um, I'm trying to see if we can do guests, but it's so hard to work. <laughs> it's so hard to work. And y'all might just be listening to me for season three until I get some help. Okay. Because listen, <laughs> these boys run my life. <laughs> okay. Like my babies know that I work for them. Okay. Mm. And so season three may just be me. <laughs> 
So Dr. Martin, thank you once again for all your wisdom and expertise. And I can't wait to have you back. But y'all remember to just tune in to her podcast and follow her on social because you will learn a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode of the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this conversation informative, please share today's episode with your friends and on your social media accounts. And of course, it would be greatly appreciated if you could take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of the Very Well Mind podcast as we explore the power of community.